If you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning. We'll be reading the entire chapter, just 11 verses, as we continue along in our series through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is kind of where it starts to get interesting, uh, if you're reading through the book of Revelation. Uh, chapter 1 has its fair share of symbolism, uh, and chapters 2 and 3 do as well, but chapters 2 and 3 are discussed often uh, in the life of the church. Uh, chapters 2 and 3, of course, being the, the message to the seven churches to which the letter itself is addressed, spread throughout Asia Minor, uh, each with a specific context, each with a specific thing that Christ had to say through John that was communicated to that particular church in their particular context, but also useful for the church through the ages, including the church today. Our church uh, is included in that as well. Uh, and when we get into Revelation 4, that's kind of where, again, it feels like to some people reading through that you can get lost in the weeds. The symbolism starts to pick up quite a bit. Uh, the language starts to get hard to understand um, and can and sometimes, especially later on, uh, can appear frightening as we begin to talk about things of judgment and things coming at the end. Uh, but I would encourage you to, uh, to, 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 to dig in. Uh, to hold on uh, and to realize that, as I said at the beginning of this series, that the entire book of, Re of, the, of, of the Revelation is for the entire church. Uh, the church that existed uh, when Jesus gave the message to John, uh, the church that existed throughout history between then and now, uh, the church that will exist in the future uh, from now until Jesus returns, and the church today. Uh, it is a message for all of the church throughout all time, meaning it's a message for us as well. So every word that's written in this book is, is, is useful, not only for the end, but for today as well. Uh, God's word does not return to him void. God has a, a work to do through his word today. And if we will open our hearts to hear that word, I believe that God will implant that kind of word in us. Uh, so even as we move along into the harder to understand or less read passages of Revelation, I hope that you continue to dial in. Uh, so how many of you watched uh, any of the Olympics a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, however long that was? Okay, it looks like most of you at least touched uh, uh, some of it and watched some of it. I don't know what your favorite events are. Uh, my boys love the, sw uh, the swimming, right? Uh, I enjoy watching track and field, uh, knowing that it's something I could never do, obviously. Uh, so watching uh, men run really fast is, is fun. Uh, and so I enjoyed that. But one of, the, one of my favorite parts of the Olympics is watching those times when they cut away from the action uh, and they show a medal ceremony. Now, it's especially meaningful when it's an American who's won first place, but it's meaningful anytime you get to watch that because you get to see some person whose dream it was, likely from the time they were a child, uh, at least for several years because it takes that long to prepare yourself for something like the Olympics, whose dream it was to represent their country uh, and come and be victorious. You get to see that dream fulfilled right in front of your eyes uh, while our national anthem or some other country's national anthem is being played. Uh, it's a beautiful moment. Uh, it's one of those moments where uh, you you, you kind of take a step back from all of the action. You take a step back from what was kind of a tumultuous Olympics, especially this year with everything going on in the world. Uh, and you get, just get to kind of celebrate the reason why those things matter in the first place uh, is that we get to come together uh, and, and celebrate uh, human achievement. That's kind of what Olympics is about, right? Uh, and getting to see that fulfilled in, in that kind of setting and get to see it lived out in 
live television or however many hours it's delayed right in front of you uh, is a is a meaningful event to watch happen. It's why those athletic competitions matter in the first place. In most things we set our minds to, we need those moments where we re-answer the question, why am I doing this anyway? What's the point of all of this? Everything from life in general, like the big existential question, why am I here, to uh, why am I in this particular career? We need those moments where we remember why I chose this path. We need those moments why we remember why we decided to become a father or a mother, why we decided to become a husband or a wife, why we decided to move to a particular location, why we decided to follow Jesus even. We need those moments where we re-answer a question that we've answered hopefully many times before, but reminding ourselves of the answer to that question, why am I doing this anyway? Why am I here in the first place? And what we get to see in the book of Revelation in chapter 4 it's kind of an answer to that question, and it happens throughout a Revelation, really. Uh, there are these interludes, we might call them, uh, where there's a break from the action, and we see into the throne room of heaven. Well, we see worship going on in heaven. We see action taking place in heaven that's, that's separate from, but also a part of, everything that's going on on earth. And it reminds us about why all of this matters anyway. From the very outset of this series, I wanted to make sure that you understood that the book of Revelation is a singular title, The Revelation, and it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not a set of revelations. It is one revealing. It is one apocalypse. That's what the word apocalypse means. In Greek, it's to reveal, to pull back the curtain. It is one revealing of the king of the universe, Jesus himself. He is central in all things, also in this book. He is central throughout all scripture, but also here in the Revelation. He is the center figure in everything that happens. Not what's happening on earth, not the end time stuff, that's there for sure. But who is the center figure in every circumstance, in every story? It is always Jesus. And we get to see a little bit of that as we look into the throne room here in Revelation 4. Before we jump in, let's pray once more together. Father, we are grateful that your spirit is here with us this morning. God, that you are present in this place. God, we thank you that the same father we're about to read about is with us now and is the author of our salvation. And God, we worship you for who you are and for what you have done. God, you are better than any of us could imagine. And yet you give yourself to us freely. God, we ask that, Lord, you help us through the movement of your Holy Spirit to cut through the busyness and distraction of our weeks, to calm an anxious mind or heart, and to help us focus solely on your word and what you have to say to us this morning. And God, we pray that through the power of your perfect word, God, that you would do a work of transformation within each of us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, or the whole chapter. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. 
At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, a, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they existed and they were created. Again, this is one of those interludes, a break in the action. After Jesus has spent much time communicating to John particular words for each of the churches, things they needed to repent of, encouragement for the things they were doing well, what they needed to do to overcome the world that was going on around them, he stops and brings John into the throne room of heaven to give him this unique view of what's going on while everything else is happening on earth. Among other things, Revelation is a book of worship. If you look throughout its pages, you will find many, again, many of these scenes, these interludes where we are looking into a heavenly worship scene where we see heavenly beings like the ones we see in this story, where we see the saints gathered together. We see all creation gathered together, worshiping God for eternity. And in this particular instance, there is heavy referencing of, of in case you wanted to do some homework later, heavy referencing to Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and Daniel 7. So visions that other men had had into heaven that sound very similar to the one John is having here in Revelation. And so, like I said, John's invited into a heavenly vision. He sees a door that has been opened. This reminds us back to chapter 3 when Jesus has the message to the church at Philadelphia. He says, I'm the one who opens the door and no one closes it. Jesus has opened the door for John to come in. And through John's witness and experience, we too are getting to enter in and see something that no one has ever seen before then or seen since then to the degree that John was seeing into heaven. The voice of Jesus himself, the one like a trumpet, invites him into this place to see what must take place, quote unquote, after these things. Be careful any time in the Revelation that you see a like a time-bound word. Uh, it is important, right? Uh, but if you start to create some sort of step-by-step -step chronology of exactly the way things are going to go, you're going to miss the point and you're going to uh, go off into the weeds and you're going to miss what Revelation is really trying to teach us. Uh, because we're looking at things right now in Revelation 4 through a heavenly perspective. 
Now, indeed, we're talking about things that will take place in the end, but we're also talking about things that have taken place and that are taking place. As we look into heaven, we're looking into a place that exists outside of the realm of time. And so we don't need to see this again as a step-by-step chronology. We don't need to think if you take your own worldview and you approach Revelation 4 and you say, okay, where does the tribulation fit in? Where does the rapture fit in? Where does this fit in? Where does that fit in? You're bringing something you were taught somewhere else and you're bringing it into Scripture instead of allowing Scripture to speak for itself. And so there are some theologies that we can develop by taking Scripture as it says, as what it actually is, but let us not bring those questions to the text and put them in there. Instead, allow Scripture to speak for itself and allow Jesus to speak for himself. We're not looking at a step-by-step chronology of the end. Instead, we're seeing John describe future events, but also events that are present and past as well. And we see the one who exists throughout all time seated on a throne. And on this throne, he appears like stones, jasper and carnelian. These stones hearken back to, this is another biblical reference outside of the ones that I already gave you, hearken back to the priestly garments that the priests would wear where they would go into the Holy of Holies and present uh, the, uh, the, the offering of atonement sacrifice for the entire year. He's encircled by a rainbow. All of this, the stones, the rainbow, showing God's majesty, showing God's beauty, showing God's sovereignty, showing that he is beyond us, yet with us in the presence of the elders, showing that there is something so beautiful and so amazing about God that, again, it's almost like John is grasping at words, trying to describe what he is seeing. God's beauty and strength lie beyond human speech. That's one thing that we need to get straight early on in the book of Revelation. We don't need to hold John to all the words that he's saying as being like absolute literal explanations of what he's seeing. He's coming up with the closest thing that he can. When he describes the voice of Jesus, he says one that sounds like a trumpet. To that, to him, that would have been the loudest thing that someone could think of. And so he is, he is, he's calling Jesus sound like the voice of a trumpet. That doesn't mean that Jesus' voice literally is trumpet-like. It just means he's trying to describe a nature of how Jesus sounded, this loud, commanding voice that cuts through all of the noise in a way that we can understand. And it's also why he uses stones. Precious stones are used throughout the book of Revelation to describe God and describe the new city because of their beauty. Because there is nothing on earth more naturally beautiful than these stones that he is talking about. Jesus himself, God himself, exudes that sort of beauty and strength that lie beyond our ability to understand or describe with human language. But John is doing his best. And then he moves on to, again, somewhere where we can get lost in kind of the symbolism. But I want to tell you why it's important. He describes these 24 elders seated on 24 thrones. And the first question we usually ask when we encounter this passage and others like it is, well, who are those guys? Uh, Who are these people? Who are the 24 elders? There's been a lot of conjecture throughout church history as to exactly who they are. Uh, Anything from uh, the most common one I hear is representative of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Jesus kind of put together to represent all of God's testimony, Old and New Testament, uh, all the way to more on the crazy side to represent the 12 signs of the Zodiac. That's I, I read that one for the first time this week when I was doing some study. I don't think that's what's going on, by the way, at all. Uh, but there's been all sorts of crazy explanations uh, for who, who these 24 elders are. Um, and so those are, those are some of the, the crazy explanations. But 
We don't need to get lost in that explanation. Like, I personally like the idea of it being the 12 Old Testament tribes and the 12 apostles, but even that's problematic, uh, because if, if you hold it to a literal, uh, like, hold it literally to that explanation, then you have to deal with the fact that Joseph got divided into two, two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, so which one is it? Uh, and then is it, is it Judas or is it Matthias? Or is it the Apostle Paul? Like, which one of those actually is part of the 12 in the New Testament? And, and so that's, that's what can happen when we over-literalize what's going on in Revelation. And, and you can miss the point of what's going on. Now, 12 in, 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 in Greek uh, symbolism, the number 12 uh, is, is often like a sign of human governance or, or human power. Uh, and so it's one of the reasons why it's used throughout Scripture, the 12 tribes. Uh, even after there's 13, they still get called the 12 tribes for a reason because the number 12 is important. That's uh, why there's 12 disciples probably. Uh, and so there's some aspect of like humanity bound up in these 24 elders. But at the same time, they are heavenly beings. And we don't need to miss that reality. They're heavenly beings with some sort of authority, some sort of rulership. They themselves sitting on thrones while also likely being representative of the church of Jesus Christ, of new Israel in some capacity. Their purpose, though, at the end of the day, is worship. That's what they're there for. They sing it towards the end of the chapter after the creatures, and they sing a song that's uh, at the end of the passage Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Even the adornments that they have, the gold crowns that they wear, are thrown at the feet of the throne in worship. That is their purpose. That's even the purpose of their power and their rulership is to worship the God who is in the center of everything. And then before we get onto the four creatures, we see uh, once again a sign of power and awe uh, around the throne. We see, we hear and see lightning and thunder. God utilizing all aspects of his creation to show just how powerful he is. We see once again the symbol of the seven torches of fire, which we've already seen several times, representing the seven spirits of God, the fullness of God dwelling in this throne room. And then we see this mysterious kind of uh, glassy sea as it were. It's a a glass that looks like a sea, almost. Uh, And you're wondering, what in the world is that? Um, There was, uh, in in Solomon's temple, there was like a bronze area that was, that was before the throne, uh, or or before, uh, before the holy place that we we would go into, uh, and and, kind of gave you this sense of distance between ourselves and God. And so perhaps uh, in, in this instance as well, there is showing God's holiness, God's otherness, uh, that God is separated from all around him by, by, by showing how, how wonderful and how majestic and how beautiful he is, even compared to all of these amazing creatures around him. And then, of course, there's the four creatures. The question again arises, well, what are they? Who are they? There's a lot of guesses on this one as well. I guess it's like the four Gospels. Uh, and, and I don't remember how you attribute each one to each Gospel, but that's one of the guesses that people have had throughout time. Um, others have had, and, and one that, that I like the most, even though it's not the most important thing in the world, uh, is it's representative of creation, kind of showing four of the chief creatures and each element of creation, a lion uh, being like the chief of the wild animals, an ox being a chief of domesticated animals, an eagle being the chief of the flying animals, and of course man uh, itself being the chief of all creation. Uh, and so all of these 
these, these creatures are surrounding God, kind of showing that all of creation is subject to God, all of creation is worshiping God. Uh, but they don't look normal, despite the fact that they have faces that look the way they're also covered in eyes, uh, showing that they can see everything, showing their own power. And so it's, it's again, if you get lost in the minutia, what, what does this mean? 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 Um, you're going to get lost, period. And you're going to just like close the book and walk away and decide, well, that's for some other time. Or that's for some other group. Uh, if, if, if the trumpet blares and, you know, I know that Jesus is coming back tomorrow, I'll, I'll pick it up again. Uh, but until then, man, that's just too much. That's what you do if you get lost in those little bitty details, okay? Anybody know the difference between an allegory and a parable? Uh, in an allegory, it's a story that represents another story, right? In an allegory, every single element of that story is supposed to represent another story. Every single character represents another character. Every single setting represents another setting. All of them have their equal. And a parable, it's not necessarily that way. A parable is like what you might call a fable in the world, right? Uh, meaning that there's this story and there's this overall moral to the story that you should take away from and apply to your life. Right? That's what a parable is. It doesn't mean that every single element of the parable means something else. And so when we read through Revelation, let us not take all of this allegorical where every single detail, well, the eyes mean this, or the four faces mean this, or the four wings or six wings mean this. Let's not miss the, miss the point that what's going on here is majestic and otherworldly and mind-boggling, and John is seeing it for the first time in his entire life and doing his best to describe it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to us, to the people who are on the earth at his time, to those who will exist at the end in such a way that it brings the message of God to us. And the message of God is not to get lost in the details. God, our Father, is not the author of confusion. And if you walk away from this book confused, that's not the Holy Spirit. That is us trying to apply our like uh, our, our American, our Western Enlightenment tendencies to a book that was meant to be read in a different way. And one of the ways that it was meant to be read is, is, is as a worship book, showing us what worship in heaven truly looks like. And so with that in mind, what's the purpose of the four creatures? To worship, just like the 24 elders. Their song is more well known. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And it says that they're around the throne, on the four sides of the throne, singing this song continually. And when they finish their song, or after they finish one round of their song, that's when the 24 elders jump in. And they don't just jump in and sing their song. It says they jump in and they fall prostrate before the throne, throwing their crowns at the throne, and they sing the song I read to you earlier that closes out the chapter. Let me draw your attention to that final paragraph or final verse once more at the end of chapter 4. This is the song of the 24 elders. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, if we take the 30,000 foot view of this passage, what we see crystal clear is that all creation bows in worship and adoration of Jesus Christ. All creation. The 24 elders somehow representing the church in Israel fall on their faces and cast their crowns before God. 
the four living creatures, again, how somehow representing all of creation are worshiping God through an endless song. Even those who are on thrones are bowing to the one on the throne, the one in the middle, the one who all of this is about. Even these peculiar heavenly beings are pausing to worship God. So that leads me to this question when I read this passage that I ask myself and I would encourage you to ask yourself as well. What if the beings in Revelation 4 are created for nothing more than the eternal worship of God? What if that's their whole point? What if like this is the one thing that they were created for is what we read in Revelation? Because when we see them in Ezekiel and Daniel, they're kind of doing the same thing. They're described differently, but a lot of the same symbolism is used. What if the whole purpose of these creatures is to worship God for eternity? Now, if you're like me, and there's a cynical bone in your body, you might be saying to yourself in your humanity, well, that seems kind of conceited of God, doesn't it? That he would create something just to worship him forever and ever and ever. Like if I had the power to make somebody worship me all the time, I would do that. But I'm doing that from a sense of pride and from a sense of needing that worship and adoration. God is not. God is doing it simply because he is worthy of that. Like he's actually perfect. He's actually the creator of all things. They were created by his will. And only because of him do we exist. Only because of him does the furthest star exist. Only because of him does the smallest particle in the universe exist. All because God made sure that it existed by speaking it into existence. And so if God decided to create these heavenly creatures that are majestic and, and, and let's just be honest, ridiculously crazy looking in, 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 in imagine seeing them. Like, can you imagine if you're again like me, you try to be visual when you when you're reading something like this. Can you imagine being in John's shoes and looking out and seeing these 24 elders? Like, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm thinking like Star Trek or something, right? I'm seeing a, uh, like these these weird looking beings, alien, humanoid kind of things surrounding God. That's just me. That's not Bible, by the way. That's just my head uh, around God and worshiping Him and throwing their crowns before Him, and then these creatures. Oh my goodness, I don't even know how to conceptualize, how to visualize what John is describing. Uh, the eyes are the things that throw me off. I get the faces, but they're covered in eyes. Oh my goodness, I don't know how to make sense of that in my head. And I try to imagine this, and I'm just left completely flummoxed. I'm left completely like, what in the world does this look like? And that's okay. Like it's okay that you're left in awe by a description of the Almighty God. It's okay that you would be left in a situation where you could see into heaven, where you would think, wow, this is beyond me. Not only is it okay, it is good to recognize how far God is beyond us, how big he really is, how amazing he really is. It's really good to realize that. Sometimes it is good for us to remember, especially in a world where we can make ourselves so big and so important, how small we really are compared to the almighty God of the universe who can literally create a crazy looking creature with eyes all around him that looks like a lion just to worship him day and night for eternity. Our God is big. Our God is amazing. Our God is beyond us. And that ought to cause us to at least pause for a moment. When we bow our heads in prayer, when we open our mouths to worship, when we read from his word, 
It ought to cause us a moment to at least pause, if not to actually tremble at the God we are approaching. It's good to be small. It's good to be reminded of how big God really is. And now to drive this home and why it matters to us. It obviously matters to us anyway, but to drive it home even more. Let me set this in context of what's going on in John's world when he's pinning these words. John was writing to Christians spread throughout Asia Minor, living as Christians under the influence of the Roman Empire and the oppressive rule of Roman emperors. Not only that, but John was writing about the future of the church all the way to the end of time. So there's some important things for John to address. And so it's as if in the middle of all that importance, Jesus takes John aside, puts his arm around him, and in the midst of all the chaos says, okay, okay, all of this is going on. This is what I want you to do in chapters 2 and 3. This is how the church needs to respond. But can we just take a moment and, and, and just look at this, John? Just, just take a moment and open your eyes and just look at what's going on in heaven. Just watch this worship service that you're not even a part of yet. That's not about you. That's about me. That's about my son. Just take a moment and watch what's going on. Open your eyes and look into heaven watch what's happening here because i can guarantee you that christians who lived in john's world were living under the threat of expulsion from society or worse every day of losing their business of losing their lives of being removed from their society of being removed from their cities because of their expression of faith in jesus they were under that threat continually both from the roman empire around them and from jewish brothers and sisters who were living amongst their uh, uh, amongst them and the perfect medicine for a heart anxious about the things of this world is to turn our hearts in worship to our god who is above the world all creation bows to him. All human authority, 24 elders, bow to him. All human governance bows to him. All creation exists to bring glory to our God. All creation exists to bring glory to our God. That's the takeaway from Revelation 4, at least in the way that I read it. And when we bring that into our world today, now look, we don't live under the constant threat of our lives being taken by an evil emperor. But we live in a chaotic world nonetheless. Can I get an amen or an oh me or a nod of agreement? We live in a chaotic world. We live in a broken world. And we live in a world where you can find out about all the chaos and brokenness at the single click of a button on your phone or uh, on your computer and learn everything that's terrible in the world in like 30 minutes because we have access to all of it. And it's overwhelming, isn't it? You know, I've done, it's easy to get lost in one of those like uh, spirals of hopelessness when you read what's going on in the world. Like when you read what, what the experts say about what's happening with the coronavirus now or what the experts say about what's happening with American politics or what the experts say what's happening about climate change or all the different things that people are talking about and all the different things that people are worried about. It's easy to get lost in a spiral of hopelessness. Even when you look at Christian publications, they're talking about the downfall of Christianity in the West and how there's fewer and fewer Christians percentage-wise in America every year. It's easy to get lost in that death spiral of hopelessness. What if 
today is a day where through his perfect word, God takes you aside and says, hey, would you just look for a second? Would you just look into this worship scene in heaven? And would you be reminded that all creation bows to me? That there is nothing beyond me? For the, for the Christian, alive when John was writing these words, it would have been the Roman emperor. Even Nero or Domitian, whoever it was, bowed to Jesus. In the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, right? Paul tells us that in Philippians. We know that to be the reality. All creation bows to Jesus. Now, they didn't know anything about like microscopic bugs or anything like that. But to them, the worst things they could think of, uh, pestilence, famine, uh, you know, all kinds of things going bad in the world around them, those things bow to Jesus. In our world, everything bows to Jesus, even the coronavirus. Everything bows to Jesus, even American politics. Everything bows to Jesus. Even the church of Jesus Christ, when it has lost its way, will again come back to Jesus. Even those who are ungodly and refuse to accept Jesus as Savior will one day bow to Jesus. Even if it's not the way they wanted it to or we would want that to happen, one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And one day all creation is awaiting this day according to Romans 8. All creation will testify to the goodness of our God. All creation will bow and worship. That day is is coming this isn't like i hope it's coming fingers crossed you know i got my my lucky rabbit's foot i'm rubbing it to make sure that this day comes true no this is a reality this is something that is going to happen but we can be so sure of it to believe that act like it's already happened our god will win our god already has won the victory that will be realized at the end of time was sealed with the blood of jesus on the cross that victory has already been won, and one day it will become fully a reality for each and every single one of us. So, Christian, follower of Christ, for you today, I have a word. No matter what you're going through, no matter what chaos is around you, in your family, in your home, in your world, in your country, whatever is going on in your heart that is causing you unease and anxiety and worry, I'm here to tell you that all of that will bow at the name of Jesus someday. Can I get a... An, an amen on that. All of that will bow at the name of Jesus someday. All of it will falter under the weight of his glory. All of it will rumble when they come and they hit their knees millions and billions before the throne of Jesus Christ. All will bow to him someday. Even that thing you are super worried about. And I'm not saying that we don't need to address things going on in our world. I'm just saying here we have an offer of perspective. I believe that's what Jesus is giving to John in Revelation. Hitting him with a bunch of heavy stuff in Revelation 2 and 3 about what the church needs to do and getting ready for what's coming with all the different judgments that are on their way. He's pausing like he will again and reminding John, I've got this. I'm dominating this. I don't just have it. Like I'm the boss. There's no one up bigger than me. And if you're following me, that's a pretty good place to be. That's a pretty safe place to be. We might not be rescued from all the worldly ills on this side of heaven, but the promise is there that one day, one day, we will forever and ever. As I think about that throne room, it mystifies me. 
And I love being mystified by God. It awes me in such a way that I don't have to know what every single element means. Instead, I can, through John's lens, to the best of my ability, join him in simply being in awe of the one true God. This is who we approach when we worship. And Revelation is indeed a book of worship. As we come to a conclusion and we enter into our time of invitation, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus as Savior, whatever it is that's keeping you from making that decision, I can tell you that I firmly believe that Christ will rule over even that thing someday. If you're worried about chaos in this world, about the things that cause us to fear and, 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 and tremble and be anxious, you will find no other answer than the God who created everything. He alone stands at the center of time and at the center of space, calling us to him to receive his protection when no one else will do. And if you haven't decided to follow him in faith, Today could be a good day to do that. I would love to talk to you about what it means to believe in and follow Jesus as Savior. I'll be down here while our band is playing here in just a moment. And I'll hang around after the service if you would like to talk then. And if you're joining us online, just shoot us a message on Facebook and tell us you want to talk to somebody about Jesus and somebody will reach out to you. For those of you who do believe in and follow Jesus, have you forgotten how big he is? Have you overemphasized how big the world is lately. How big the worries are. How big the bills are. How big school, college is. How big that problem in your marriage or with your family is. Have you overemphasized that and forgotten how big our God really is? Because that scene we just read, I think that's going to be what heaven looks like, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. I think that's going on right now. Like, I think that's something that's happening now. The elders and the beasts are worshiping Jesus for eternity. He's big enough to handle whatever you have in front of him. Maybe he needs to remind you of that today through prayer. Maybe you need to ask him to remind you and show you his power. I'll be down here to pray with you about this or anything else. The altar, the steps will be open if you'd like to come and kneel and pray there. And as always, you can pray right where you are at. Well, let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Our band is going to come and lead us in some more worship. And as they do, would you just move in whatever way God is calling you to? Father, again, we are grateful to be in your presence. God, we cannot get our heads around the picture that your servant John created for us. The picture that you gave him. God, we are left in awe at your majesty. And God, we are grateful for that. We are grateful for how much bigger you are than our world, than our problems, than us. There is nothing that will not submit to you. God, we praise your name for that.
remind us of that truth today. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.